Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, that first uh, book in the New Testament, and there's uh, undoubtedly a pew Bible nearby you if you uh, need one handy on the end of the pew. You're welcome to, uh, to use one of those as we saw uh, last week and looked through the first chapter of this book of Matthew, saw this reality that uh, not only is each one of us uh, broken, sinful, in need of God's grace and mercy, in need of this, this knowledge that God loves us far more in Christ than we ever dream, but that in fact we come from uh, what we might call a loser lineage. We come from a guilt-ridden genealogy. We come from a horrible heritage. And that is that, that all that's come before us is like us, brokenness, a need for Christ. We saw that laid out right at the beginning of Matthew. It doesn't sugarcoat us, sugarcoat for us, even in the lineage, lineage of Joseph. Even in the lineage of Joseph, we see laid out plainly before us the need for a Redeemer. And then we saw as well the, the incredibly good news that God promised this message to Joseph that Jesus was coming and he should be called Jesus because he would be the one who would save people from their sins. That he would be Emmanuel as well. Another title he has, God with us. And he's right with us in the midst of that. Even though we don't deserve to have him anywhere near us, he's right with us. So we saw that last week. Today we turn to chapter 2 of Matthew and continue uh, familiar verses uh, probably for us. I'm sure probably even more familiar than what we looked at uh, last week. And as we do, and as we read these few verses, I want you to begin thinking about those places in our life where we struggle between these two options, uh, receiving and rejoicing what, in what Jesus has done and who he is, versus rejecting or relegating who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Receiving and rejoicing in his kingship versus rejecting and relegating his kingship. Invite you to stand with me as I read aloud and you read along silently Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly 
with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. As you do, let's pray uh, once again. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we know that each one of us here are like grass. And whatever glory we might have to us is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but not your word. It stands forever, and we thank you for that. We ask that you'd be our teacher today, that you would take things that perhaps we've heard and been familiar with, uh, some of us for a number of years, and give them a fresh impact for your purposes in our lives. Today we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the verses today, we see different responses to this little baby come in a manger. It's interesting just from the sheer fact that there is this kind of response to a a little tiny child coming into such an out-of-the-way place. But we see the, the insider rulers and religious folks who would seem to our mind to want to respond because of their heritage because of their lineage because of their spiritual connection to who Jesus is instead being troubled and in fact being pretty resistant to who this tiny child is and on the flip side we see the entirely unexpected those who were used to seeing in our little manger scenes nativity sets who really are from totally outside the scope of Other things we might read in the scriptures, these pagan astrologers, they were wise men showing up on the scene and in fact ready to receive, ready to worship this tiny one. We see from right at the start that Jesus is this one who divides, if you will, and highlights for us what's going on in our own hearts. Are we receiving and rejoicing in him or are we rejecting and relegating his kingship and thus the incarnation is really not just about the manger scene or the one who comes to the manger but it's about each one of us and our response to the manger this is a passage about how people respond to jesus coming and it raises the question for us how do we respond to his presence in our world i've probably uh, shared a little bit of this in the past but a a number of years ago i guess it had to be at least uh, six or seven years ago uh, our children the patients had gotten together with them and they'd uh, gotten a hold of one of these fisher price 
nativity sets. You know the one I'm talking about. I don't think they've changed the design in the last 30 years. So if you had one when you were growing up, you, you might see the same thing with the little figurines. And, and on ours, you could press the little star on top if the batteries were, were you know, loaded in there and it would play a little Christmas tune as well. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure the condition of the the Peter's nativity set today. I think I've seen it, you know, brought into a, a Lego battle scene and Star Wars fighting as a launching pad for rocket blasters. But, you know, it, it, it at the time was a, a special thing and the, the family, the kids were, were playing with it each day. And I came home one evening and Patience sort of with a smile on her face said, you, you need to go look at the nativity set out in the foyer. So I walked out there and I, you know, took a sort of glance at it, I thought, well, you know, that's nice. They put up a little Fisher-Price nativity set in the foyer. And she said, no, you know, take a, take a little closer look. I took a little peek, and there were the wise men over here, and you had your camels here and your donkey, and you had Mary and Joseph, and then your little plastic uh, base of the manger and little imitation plastic hay, and then I saw it. Instead of sweet little baby Jesus lying on top of the hay, was Thomas the train, all snuggled away in his little bed there, tucked in. And I remember that because the spiritual irony was kind of humorous enough at the time that we even took a, a picture of it. And we certainly you know, can't fault a little youngster for enjoying his toys. That was that season when one of ours loved to dress in the Thomas stuff and play with the Thomas stuff and talk about the Thomas stuff all of the time. But boy, doesn't it highlight for us who are maybe in more mature years of our life the reality that we are so prone to want to toss Jesus out of his position and put other things in his place. What are some of those things? Maybe for you it's his job and what you're able to achieve job-wise. Maybe it's success in some area or other scope of life. might be our appearance, how we look and come off to people. Maybe it's our health. Maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our children's health or success or appearance. Maybe it's our desires, those deep things that motivate us and propel us from inside that aren't always in alignment with the Lord and His purposes. Maybe it's our image, not just so much how you look on the outside, but to be the together person or the moral person or the religious person. Maybe it's just personal comfort and ease. It's a lot of things that vie for that center place in our life and threaten to kind of push Jesus out of the manger of our hearts and lives. I know for me, and I think I've confessed this a couple of times the last week, I don't want you to think I've got some kind of horrible complex or issue, I guess, but it is really interesting to be in a season of the year when you say this is time to focus in on all of what Christ has done and to to be familiar with what's in this book. The, you know, those aren't new concepts for a good number of us perhaps in here and for me as well. And, and yet to, to have those things not strike your heart, your soul as deeply as you know 
that they should or could. It's challenging. It's challenging. And so as we look at this passage, we certainly uh, need the refreshment of knowing that Jesus Christ comes not just as king, but as the passage says, to shepherd his people Israel. So to be a, a shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. We've got to know that, otherwise we'll be sort of piled under a, a pile of guilt. But that reality of salvation is also meant to change us, most of, meant to propel a response. And so the main idea you, you might want to track along with in the back of your worship guide, I, I didn't put it down on the sheet, so you'll have to jot it down if you want to make a note of it, is that since Jesus is king, that's what this passage is about, his kingship, we should respond to his salvation by bowing down to him. Since Jesus is king, we should respond to his salvation by bowing down to him. That's what we see in our passage. Now, the kingship of Jesus is an interesting thing when you think about it. He enters the world in a place of weakness and uh, lacking any control or real authority in this world and is pitted against a sort of provincial leader, this guy Herod, who doesn't really want Jesus around is even sending the wise men as as an espionage mission to find out so that, as we read later, he wants to go and eliminate this competition. That's the way Jesus begins his life. Do you ever think about it in terms of the way he ends his earthly life? Once again, allowing himself before Pilate, before the Jewish leaders of the time as well, to put himself in a place of weakness. He allows himself to be arrested and taken once again contrasted against the leader and leaders of the world. This is a passage about who it is that Jesus is and whether we're going to recognize Him as King. You know, I, uh, I'm not a, a, a super listener to all sorts of styles of music, but I do I like the Bob Dylan tune, which is probably one of his most well-known everybody's got to serve somebody. I don't know when the last time you listened to that. It's an interesting one in light of our passage today. It says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on stage. You may have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they might call you chief. You may be a state trooper. You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name. But you've got to serve somebody. Everybody's got to serve somebody. That's true, isn't it? When we think about that part of Jesus that He comes into this world not only as Savior, but as Lord, 
He forces us to deal with where we are related to His Lordship. Is He the one to whom we bow down? And it's interesting how our passage brings this to light. Take a look with me back at verse 1 of chapter 2 in Matthew. And your uh, worship guide, uh, probably, probably due to my error in email, has place, politics, uh, people, and then place again. The last one's supposed to be praise, not, not place. But let's talk about this place that this takes place, Bethlehem. Verse 1 of Matthew 2 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea. Makes a real specific point of that. And then you, you know Herod's whole question is, Where's this thing going to go down? What's the place? Now, part of that is he wants to find him and kill him. But also part of it is that the, the place points to the person and who the person is to his power. Jump with me down to verse 6 where we read, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why? For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Going back to the Old Testament, to Micah chapter 5, and highlighting this fact that Bethlehem is this city of David, this place that the king, the earthly king of God's people, was to come from. And so when we read this passage, even the place, Bethlehem, that we just probably think about as, oh, this is a quaint little town a few miles south of of Jerusalem where, where that little nativity scene and so forth took place. But But it's really... Telling us something. Bethlehem is saying, the king comes from here. This is where the king comes from. Second thing we see about Jesus' kingship in our passage is the politics, we might call it, taking place. You know, Herod's an interesting guy, and, you know, we wouldn't, any of us, myself included, be expected to sort of know about Herod and really know who he is off the top of our head. But I'll remind us that Herod is a guy who is nominally Jewish. So he's outwardly aligned with the people of God at the time. But he's actually an Edomite. He's from a, a different group of folks. Not only that, but, you know, he's, he's not like David. Because who's really in charge at this time of Israel? The Romans are. So he's a guy, he's got an identity complex, a serious one. He's not really legitimate in his sort of background to be the king, nor is he legitimate in how his authority and leadership is secured. And it's interesting for us to think about for ourselves. As we consider, first and foremost, the, the fact that you know, Herod represents the reality that every organization, every authority, every entity in this world is constantly going to be wrestling to either submit to who Jesus is and His Lordship or to not submit. Every government, every large corporation, every entity, every home, every family, that little organization is constantly in a place of having to decide, just as we as individuals do, whether to submit to Him. But it's interesting even in a more pointed way for each one of us. Now, now we don't want to draw a whole lot of parallels between us and Herod because he's just this ruthless, uh, ridiculously evil guy, as we see right after this passage where he wipes out a whole generation of children to try to secure his reign. 
But but even though we don't maybe want to draw a, a, a real strong line between him and us, there is one significant similarity, isn't there? We don't like having what we perceive as our authority over the things in our life challenged either. We don't like to have to surrender what we want to do and what we think our life should look like to this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords, do we? There's politics going on here. There's a place. All of these things reveal something about Jesus. And then there's the people. And we can't go through all the people on the scene, but you know who the main folks are in this part of the Christmas story. These wise men, these magi, and you know, we don't know really how many of them there were. There's always three pictured because of the gifts, but it may have been a whole group of them. And I, I think it's interesting to think about them, again, in contrast to the folks that were right there nearby who should have sought Jesus and should have worshipped him and don't seem to be present in the scene. And conversely, you have these folks that have traveled. We don't know how far from whatever far eastern lands that are really pagan folks, so they're not necessarily real familiar with all of the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, and yet are coming to see Jesus and to worship Him. They're very unexpected people in this scene, even though we expect to see them in each one of our mangers. And, and they're interesting, too, because they're kind of the scientists of the day. I always find it interesting, we think about, and this is a little aside, but I think an important one, that, that in our time today, reason, rationality says that you have this certain theory and you're just going to cling to it. And if you see spiritual things that operate outside of that scientific paradigm, you ignore those and press on forward. You notice what the wise men do? They're the scientists of their time, and they realize, you know what? We're astrologers. We're used to looking at the skies. Who knows what full knowledge they had? But they realize that something didn't fit in their grid, this star that was unexpected. And instead of tossing that to the side, they said, maybe we should look into that. Maybe there's things outside of just what we can reason and understand with our mind that we need to look into that have Spiritual impact that will be true for us. I think that's compelling about what they see in Jesus. And the last thing we see is that they come. And, and they don't just come, but they come ready to praise. That's that fourth P. Ready to praise. Look at verse 10. It's really interesting how specifically it describes what they did they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy goes on verse 11 going into the house they saw the child his mother mary they fell down and worshiped him and it's just a reminder i think for us especially as it says that they worshiped exceedingly uh, I, i'm a i'm a guy that as you all probably in this church family have gotten to know me I, I maybe tend to be a little bit reserved uh, my good friend brandon robbins likes to call me guarded I'm, I, I try to work i'm trying to grow on that and so forth throughout my life but 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 i tend to be that way and so and maybe there's others here that are like that the idea of being exuberant about something of having something that's exceeding that goes beyond sort of 
the amount of emotion and passion that I really want to expend on something, that's challenging to think about. That's challenging to engage in that way. And I just want to remind us uh, and remind myself in the process, the things of Jesus as King and Kings and Lord of Lords are worthy of everything that we have in us. Every part of who we are, every bit of our being, every emotion, everything is uh, rightly directed to Him. We cannot go overboard in worshiping this baby in a manger. And the wise men remind us that of that as they've come from so far with such beautiful gifts to give to this little baby lying in a manger. What does that look like for you and me? Maybe it means singing out in the worship services in the next couple of weeks, even if you don't feel like you're very good at singing. Maybe it means praying, God, would you give me, I, I know I'm, you know, I know I'm overly reserved too about the things of you. Give me something in the affections in my soul that I really move towards you in a new and fresh way in this Advent season. Maybe it's reading the Bible stories for those of us with little kids or maybe you've got grandkids and you're, you're reading that story and, and you, you read it with a gleam in your eye and a passion in your voice instead of just going through it as the nightly uh, ritual of, of spiritual development for the kids. Maybe it means getting excited and really praying deeply for some of our missionaries and folks around the world. Maybe it means you go really out of your way to serve and bless somebody around you. I don't know all of what it would mean, but the wise men challenge us to step in and, and, and receive Jesus and really rejoice in Him. As we close and think about this reality of the kingship of Jesus, I was reminded of this story that, that made me think about where really each one of us rightly stands in, in a place of, of, of appropriately responding and rejoicing in Jesus rather than kind of rejecting and relegating Him. The uh, story is, is recorded of the last emperor from the Habsburg dynasty in Europe. That dynasty had lasted for uh, almost 600 years, and in 1916, Franz Joseph I died. And this was to be the last of the sort of extravagant imperial funerals. He was the last one in this long line. So you can imagine all the fanfare and all the dignities and how they were all dressed up and they even had a, a full band musical accompaniment that followed the, the procession along to the uh, Capuchin Monastery in Vienna where the whole of the Habsburg family were buried. They came to the main door of that monastery and began a ritual that apparently had been carried out for centuries between those inside the monastery preparing to receive the king and the procession outside. The leader of the procession yelled to the Archbishop of Vienna that was on the other side of that large door inside the monastery. And the procession leader said simply, Open. The Archbishop said, Who goes there? 
And the leader of the processional began to read off all the ornate and elaborate titles that Franz Joseph had. He said, we bear the remains of the imperial majesty, Franz Joseph I, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, a defender of the faith, prince of Bohemia, Moravia, grand duke of Lombardy, and went on and on through these 37 titles and concluded. The archbishop waited patiently and then said simply, we do not know him who goes there. Well, the procession leader cranked up again and went through about 15 of those titles over again to state the case. Again, the archbishop said, we do not know him who goes there. Finally, the leader of the processional said simply, we bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner in need of grace like us all. And with that, the archbishop opened the doors. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that in our uh, sinfulness, in our sinful bent, we want to be king of our lives. And we don't want to recognize that we're in a position of dependence, of need, that our right place is to put ourselves underneath You, Lord Jesus. Surrender to You. To give ourselves completely to You. And seek to follow You. And so, Lord, we pray that this Christmas uh, season You would not only be reminding us of the great salvation that's been given to us, the price that's been paid, the work that's done through You coming into the world, but that also we'd be reminded of the response that should come in our lives to You, Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.